911, what's the nature of your emergency? Good morning, police, fire, military, and families, and to everybody who is listening in on the Tactical Living Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton, and as you know, I absolutely love, love, love Tuesday mornings because I am typically not alone on them. And this morning, I am joined by my friend, Mr. Harry Dennison. Harry, how are you? I'm good this morning. Thank you for asking. How's things out in Cali? Things are good. It was a a weird, foggy morning this morning, but everything is starting to clear and um, have nothing to complain about. So thank you for asking. And In today's episode in particular, I'm very excited because we're going to talk about addiction and recovery. And I think as you listen to this, if you're you're honest, you have somebody in your circle right now who might be struggling currently with addiction or somebody who, good morning, everybody, somebody who has maybe struggled with addiction in the past. Maybe as you listen, you have somebody who you've lost because of addiction and in, in an interview like this, building relationships with somebody like Harry, it, it gives me a lot of hope because I've, as you followed my journey, you might have learned that I have brothers who struggle with addiction themselves. And it comes, it comes to this point to where you wonder if they will ever find their way out of the darkness that they're in. And Harry, hearing your story and learning about you and building a relationship with you, it, it's so inspiring. And it really does give me that sense of hope to know that people that we are so close to who we want the best for, there is an opportunity for them to be able to improve themselves and improve their lives. And as you listen to this, I hope that you listen with an open heart. Good morning, good morning, everybody. I hope that you're able to kind of pick pick apart some of the things that Harry has to say in terms of the journey that he's been on and some of the things that have helped him in overcoming addiction himself. And Harry, I'm so honored and humbled that you would be able to come into here with us and share something so vulnerable. So thank you so much, first off. And um, you're welcome. If you don't mind, I'm going to just kind of give you the stage and let you kind of tell your story and um, sure. entertain my my very <laughs> my very prudent questions. So I uh, I came from a very strong home. My my parents worked. They gave me a, a great work ethic, a great life ethic. Uh, unfortunately, there was a family. Uh, excuse the dog. <laughs> there was a family event when I was 13 that sent me back and gave me a reason at 14, I believe, to start using. Because uh, other than that event, I really didn't have another another reason to start using drugs or alcohol to try to get out of myself other than that event. So I, my short story is, is that uh, I started drinking at 14. I started smoking marijuana at 14. Uh, I started snorting cocaine at 16. 16, I believe I was a full-blown alcoholic. I was drinking before school. I was drinking after school. Uh, I graduated high school, and uh, I actually uh, joined the military. I joined the Air Force, and on uh, on ship away day, I went in, and I was overweight, and uh, they said, well, we take two pounds a week out, so you can come back and see us in four weeks. I'm like, dude, if you don't take me now, I ain't never coming back, so if you don't take me now, I won't be back, and I didn't. I didn't go back. Another disappointment to my mom and dad uh, and gave me another reason to use, gave me a reason to use more. Uh, and the cold hard fact was, is that for years and years and years, I I looked at every excuse I had to use and I was blind to the reasons that I had not to use. And that's what sets me apart today from, uh, I got sober September 13th of 2006. And that's what's, that's what suits me up every day. 
because I don't look at the excuses I have today. I look at the reasons I have not to use today. And uh, as you know, and the, the people out there don't know, is that I got sober in 06 and I entered the addiction field in, in December of 2007. So only after a few months of being sober, I decided that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was help somebody else. So they didn't have to go through what I went through on a daily basis. And they didn't have to put their families through what I put my family through to have a relationship with them today. And I still do that every day. If you don't mind me asking, Harry, what was that rock bottom for you to where 9-13-06 became, became that monumental date that it is now? Uh, I went to my first rehab in 1992. And from 1992 to 2006, I was in and out of rehabs. Uh, I'd have three months here. I'd have, you know, 60 days here. Uh, my wife at the time was doing a 90-day jail, jail stay. And she came home and she said she wanted to get sober. I'm like, ah. I don't know. I'm not ready yet because obviously if she was in jail for three months, I was still using every day for three months. So I wasn't ready. She had not used for three months. She was ready. I probably used the day before she got home and I wasn't ready to stop. And uh, in my addiction mind, I looked at her. Now, remind, mind you, she came home from an AA meeting with, I don't know, five or six guys to do an intervention. And they said, listen, if you don't stop using, you got to leave. You can't see your wife. You can't see your kids. You're just going to get going to have to go wherever. I knew I had no place to go. I knew I had nothing else to do. But in my addict mind, I said, can you give me a few days to think about it? Now, here I am on, on the verge of losing everything that I love. And uh, I'm asking for time to think about it. So that was a Monday night. Uh, I used on Tuesday that week. I didn't use Wednesday. Thursday morning was the uh, was September 13th of 2006. And I went to my first AA meeting on this journey. And I seen an old friend there who I had known for 30 years. I wonder what happened to him because I ain't seen him for like 15 years. The reason I ain't seen him is because he got sober. Hmm. We used to play softball together. We used to go to bars together. And he said, you know what? Stand by me and I will walk you through this journey. And I said, okay, Jimmy, I'm going to put you, I'm going to put myself into your hands. And he goes, okay, well, we're going to make it. And that's the last time, uh, that's the last time I used was that Tuesday. So I have a, this is a super selfish question because as I shared, I have brothers who struggle with addiction. And mm -hmm. I know that with, with myself and with my folks, we, we've always pleaded with them. We've tried every, what we think every venue is to convince them or to try to persuade them. So want to make that decision for themselves to get clean, to get healthy. And, you know, even trying, trying the sweet talk, trying the threats, trying the persuasion, all of the things. And obviously if they're still in this same cycle, none of those things have worked. So as somebody who has recovered from addiction, and I'm, I'm sure that you've had people when you were in that same state as my brothers trying to, to get you better. And I'm wondering what are some of the tactics for somebody who might be struggling in the same position as myself, having people that you know, love and care about to maybe, maybe try to get them to that place that you found on September 13 of 06. I think it's important to let people know who, if they're using and they're in your life and they're on, you know, they have some contact with you is that you don't hate them. You need to, you need to valid, validate that you love them. You don't love the things that they do or the person that they become after they use, but you do love them. You don't hate them. And that's one of the biggest things as a person in addiction uh, starts to believe. They believe everybody hates them. 
but mm -hmm. it, it's it's not that they hate the person it's they hate the addiction so one of the first things you have to do is you know process or validate your love for them and then you have to stop enabling them and when they're ready they'll ask for help or they'll seek out help if you keep pushing and pushing and pushing you're just pushing them back so they have to come to terms with the addiction on their own. Nobody else can make them come to, to terms with it at all. It's got to be in their own mind and in their own time. So essentially limiting the resources. So I have a father, for example, who's always like the one funding, right? I need to borrow some money, dad. So essentially it would be eliminating all of those resources, kind of giving them the tough love, but still showing them that you're there with support in terms of showing up with your love. Sure. Boundaries and, and consequences are huge for the families of alcoholics. We have to set boundaries to protect ourselves and we have to set consequences that we can live with as the boundary setter. So those are huge for a person in a family that is dealing with an alcoholic or you will become used, abused, manipulated and it, you will become a prisoner of your son or daughter's addiction. And that's a horrible place to be just as bad as it is to be in the head of an alcoholic or an addict. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. Thank you. And I'm wondering when you you had such a short time frame from when you yourself decided to become sober and then start to give that same journey that your friend gave to you to other people. And I'm wondering what what made you decide to go that route? Uh, I was one of those guys who did not believe there was another way. I thought I would die as an addict, an active addict. Let me make that point. Uh, I had reserved myself to the fact that anything over 30 would be a bonus. So here it is 42. I, I got sober at 42 and I'm taking a look at my life. And, uh, in 06, I was just able to listen to somebody that I knew for all those years who I trusted. But I didn't walk into an AA meeting and people just didn't come up to me and start telling me things. This was a guy that I had hung out with for 20, 25 years. I've known him for a long time. I trusted him. So when he looked me in the eyes and told me that he could help, I believed him. For the first time in my life, I believed there was a better way. Because before that, I really didn't care to believe, nor did, nor did I believe. Well, was that that like that journey of you actually starting to go into recovery? What are some of the, the things that he did or he asked you to do or held you accountable with that did allow you to stay on the, the track, the path that you both agreed to? He, well, first thing he told me was, is you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't go there and you don't go there. You don't talk to so-and-so and you don't talk to so-and-so for the first, I live in a very, I grew up in a very small village, probably 2,500 people. And the next city over is where all the drug dealing took place. So, and that's where all the meetings were pretty much in Lake County where I live. So I would have to go through this community by myself to get to an AA meeting. And there was a lot of AA meetings before that I didn't end up getting to because I ended up stopping at the local convenience or local gas station. So there was places that he said, you can't go alone. If you're going to go to a meeting, you need somebody to pick you up or you need someone to meet you somewhere outside of the city and drive into the city. So he helped me make decisions that were good for me. And over time, I became not fearful of asking for his opinion or asking him what he thought. Before that, I wouldn't I wouldn't even ask my parents what they thought, let alone another person outside of my family circle. So yeah. he was able to he was able to teach me how to look at things differently, change my perspective. Because the, if there's one thing that 
you can change on your own and that's the perspective and the way you look at things, the way you perceive things. And my way of perceiving things was all messed up. I mean, it was just off whack. So it sounds like the support I needed. That was huge. You know, he surrounded me with guys with years and years of sobriety and they were, you know, if, if they were working different shifts, somebody took first shift, somebody took second shift, somebody took third shift, they were always available for me to talk to when I had an issue. Yeah, so. that accountability, it sounds like it was a really pivotal element in recovery. Is that something that you think that all recovering addicts need is an accountability partner, so to speak? I, I do believe that. I absolutely do believe that. And in today's world, with uh, everything going virtual, so to mm -hmm. speak, it has become tougher and tougher to find somebody willing to invest that time in somebody else because they have to invest their time in their family and themselves. So it's been hard to find somebody that's willing to invest that time. So it's getting harder and harder to find so-called sponsors. Mm -hmm. They're out there, but when you only can run into, you know, people are still afraid to go out. So even some of the meetings I'm hearing in the area that I live in, you know, they might have six or seven people there and it's always a six or seven, same six or seven people and never meeting any new people. So unless you zoom, join a Zoom meeting, which to me is very, I don't know, impersonal almost, yeah. uh, it's hard to meet new people who are trying to, to help you get where you want to be because they're struggling to be who they want to be. Yeah, I can fully relate to that. I was living to live. Yeah, that really stuck out for me too. Good morning, everybody. Harry, I'm wondering, because there was this moment where you you agreed and you said, I'm ready to get clean. I want to get sober. And you had that commitment and you had the accountability partner. In the case with my brothers, for example, if, if I'm waiting for that moment, right, where they do decide to make that decision for themselves, is it going to be something similar to where they come to me and they they say, Ashley, I'm ready to get clean. Like, how do I know that it's not me just holding on to more false hope that one day they will? I think, I think they will. Most addicts do, excuse me. They reach out time and time again. They don't know how to ask for help. So if you're getting more phone calls or they're coming over to visit, if they visit more, what they're doing is they're silently reaching out for help. If they're doing something different than they used to do, then they're silently asking for help. It's something that a lot of people don't see or they don't hear, mm -hmm. but there's ways there, you know, there's ways to understand that if somebody is doing something all bit different that you don't like, they also might be doing something different that you do like to make it apparent to you that they are asking for help. They just don't know how to ask. That's really helpful. Thank you. For me personally, Ashley, it's that silent amends. Yes. Yes. I get it. Yeah, for sure. So Harry, now you you have this coaching practice that you're building up. And from my perspective, you can essentially fill that gap for somebody who perhaps wouldn't have that accountability partner. But if if you could, in your own words, describe a little bit about some of the work that you do when it comes to advocacy and recovery and treatment. Sure. I think I think a lot of people a year sober, six months sober, even five years sober, they lack that direction. They, they know where they're at and maybe they like it. Maybe they're not happy. Maybe they hate it, but they have no idea how to get out of it. Hmm. And that's what we'll be providing at raw and real coaching is, is providing them direction, providing them help to get from point A to point B. And we're going to meet them where they're at and go and work at a pace that they're comfortable with, 
with what their goals and objectives are. We're not going to tell them what they should do. We're not going to hold their hand to what they should do, but we're going to guide them through the process of change. Everybody is fearful normally on the process of change or changing because it's uncomfortable, you know, fearful of failure. But they have to understand that just because you have a goal of getting from A to B and, you know, objective number one didn't work out, there's no reason that you can't move to objective number two. You don't have to be stuck in A in the failure. And that's where most people fail. They fail a couple times and they give up. Well, you know what? I failed to get sober for 14 years. If I'd have failed to give up, I'd be dead. That's awesome. So essentially you create this roadmap for people who know what they want the end game to be, but they don't necessarily know what it looks like and how to navigate through that. So that that's a really beautiful thing. And I think that in every aspect of our life, and of course, this is coming from a coach, we all need a roadmap for that end game, no matter what facet of it it is. And I think that what you're building, what you're doing in the way that you're able to take what has happened to you, what you've overcome in your own experience and helping other people is truly something inspirational. So I thank you for that. How Thank strong, you. how strong or forcefully do you give that guidance? Bob wants to know. How far, how what? He asks, how strong or forcefully do you give that guidance? I, I will come up with a plan based on an assessment of how much help the person needs and how much time the person needs. And then we'll, we'll go from there. A, a lot of people are busy. A lot of people are double working family homes and they can only invest a half an hour or 45 minutes a week on it. Some can afford to invest an hour or two to get. I think one of the important things to know about coaching is, is coaching starts from today and works forward. It's not like therapy. Therapy starts from way back and moves forward, gets to where, hopefully gets to where you're at and then tries to move through that. Coaching is a totally different aspect. It's a game changer as far as I'm concerned. Beautiful. Yes, roadmap. I think that's that's the perfect analogy, the perfect way to do it. So, Harry, how can someone get a hold of you? Maybe if if they are in that place themselves or they know somebody who is in that place and, and they want to try to see what maybe another step could be in terms of support. At this point, they can reach me at Harry Dennison on uh, Facebook or they can reach me at Raw and Real Recovery. I have my private, I have a private uh, recovery page that I run. So if they want to reach out on Facebook by I am, or, and then I'll send them an invite to the wrong recovery page. That's fine too. Uh, we do have, we do have a website coming that's, that's being built right now. And we have a Gmail coming that's being built and all those things are happening over time. Uh, we're trying to build it the right way. And in the right way, I mean, I want to build it so everybody succeeds I just don't want to be the one succeed. I got into this business so I could see other people succeed. I go to work every day, not because of the money that people pay me. I go to the work so people like me don't have to go through what I went through to get where I'm at today. Nor do they have to put their families through what I put my family through to have the relationship I have with my family today, which is huge. I never had a relationship with my family, especially my mother. And in the last 10 years, my mother's and my relationship as I can't even explain it in words how it's grown. That's beautiful. And before we wrap this up, a question is coming up for me that I know as you listen to this, if this is something that's really pinging at you, a question that would be coming up for you as well is what is the confidentiality element of this look like if someone does reach out to you? We'll have, we'll have something sort of uh, like the HIPAA law thing that, that I will sign and they can sign. 
I also have a, a company phone and a company computer that only I have the availability to get into and look at what's in those. Uh, there'll be no, there'll be no crosstalk. There'll be no, uh, and I won't talk to you about other clients and I, and I won't talk to other people about you and, uh, the utmost respect and confidentiality be taken part because I wouldn't want my confidentiality ruined either. So I know how important that is to people and that a lot of it, confidentiality has to do a lot with the fear of somebody reaching out to get help mm-hmm. because they don't want their business spread all over the place. And that's exactly what I don't want. Yeah, for sure. So putting that trust in, in one person. So that's awesome. Harry, thank you so, so much for joining us this morning. Thanks as you listen me. to this, if there's anything that has resonated with you, please, Harry is so easy to get a hold of. So, so easy to talk to. And um, I know he would love to hear from you. So Harry, thank and you Coach so much. Ashley knows how to get a hold of me too. So yeah, you can always reach out to me too. Thanks a lot, Harry. Thank you, Ashley. I appreciate it. Have a great day.